0: Invite you all to join together with me as we're continuing to go verse by verse through this historical narrative of the planting of the church of Jesus Christ. Churches, in plural, as we're looking at three of Paul's missionary journeys now concluded, as Paul has now come to Jerusalem with the collection that was taken up for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And once there, he was advised by James, the head of the Jerusalem church the half-brother of our Lord, to participate in a very Mosaic, very uh, uh, Judaic law of taking a vow to show, to demonstrate to those that are there in Jerusalem, particularly the Pharisees and those who have been offended by what he's doing as he's going around giving the gospel of just Jesus Christ saying, the Messiah has in fact come and we've put him to death. He does all of those things perfectly. They falsely accuse him. There's the angry crowd surrounds him. They start to beat him up. And, of course, Claudius Lysias, the tribune, who's head of the with a thousand soldiers that are assembled there in the Antonia Fortress in Jerusalem, witnessing these things quickly descend the stairs down into Jerusalem there to the Temple Mount area and rescue Paul. And they're trying to find out what the charges are. It's a cacophony of of shouts and nothing makes sense. So they simply chain Paul, take him back to Antonio Fortress. And Paul asks one request of Lysias, may I respectfully address the crowd? And so we hear his first defense that he gives on the steps he addresses Lysias in high-level intellectual Greek, which impresses Lysias, and he gives him, grants him permission. He turns to the crowd and he addresses them in Hebrew, which would be the Aramaic, and they're impressed at that. So Paul is not a lightweight in terms of his intellect, his understanding of Judaism, but he's being falsely accused here. And so he addresses the crowd. Well, this is his fifth defense that we're on now. We're in chapter 26. We're working through what is arguably, perhaps decidedly, his most well-crafted apologetic. It's interesting to see as we've gone through these different defenses, why did the Lord put all of these defenses One would have sufficed. It's because there was so much to glean in these different settings as he had a different audience, whether it was a Roman governor, Felix or Festus, or it's the Sanhedrin that he stood before when he had his mouth slapped for not showing enough respect. Whoever he's standing before, and in this case, he's standing before Herod Agrippa, the famous, the infamous rather, Herod line. And he's there with Bernice, not only his wife, but his sister. And we went into looking at the family line to see how corrupt the Herod family really was. But Herod thinks very highly of himself. Obviously, he comes with all pomp and circumstance. He shows up. Felix had been dismissed as the first governor that Paul was whisked away to avoid as Lysias brought him down to Caesarea from Jerusalem, so that he wouldn't be killed by those 40 Jews, zealous Jews, who took a vow not to eat or drink until Paul was dead. And Lysias says, not on my watch. Whisked him out. He became, of course, aware providentially through Paul's nephew, of all things. God does some of his most impressive things through small means, doesn't he? Which really manifests his glory, doesn't it? So Paul's down at Caesarea, meets with Festus, or meets with Felix to begin with. Felix is just as corrupt as they can be. He wants to extort money from Paul. He's hoping to get paid off. He's got him in under house arrest at the palace there in Caesarea, giving him certain liberties and allowing his friends to come and minister to him. And Paul's not doing that. He's not cooperating. But Felix also wants to do a favor to the Jews, so he leaves him locked up. He leaves him locked up for two years until he's finally dismissed. He's corrupt. He's finally dismissed as a governor. Festus replaces him. And then when Festus talks to him, he doesn't know what to do with him because he's like, this is a theological issue between the Jewish hierarchy, the Sanhedrin, and, and, and the Apostle Paul. So this is out of my league. Well, in comes Agrippa. The Agrippa family line are Jewish, you'll remember. Corrupt as all get out, but they were very, very astute in Judaism. And Agrippa himself was said to be expert in Jewish law. So you can imagine Festus's elation to see him come in with his whole entourage and all of his splendor. And so in his pride, he said, I will see him. I'll talk to him, and he's thinking in his mind. We can surely assume I'm going to be able to straighten this out. So we're in the middle of Paul making his greatest appeal, his most well-crafted appeal, very uh, wise strategically, because he knows Agrippa is is Jewish. So he's giving him a more elaborate defense. He's treating him with respect. He's gone through, last time we looked at verse 1 through 11, he gives them his whole pedigree, his whole background that they are all aware of, that is his accusers. They all know that I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, This is all well documented. I know these people. They know me. So these charges are false. I've never been against Moses. I'm not preaching against Moses. I'm saying, in fact, the things that our fathers have said from the beginning, and that is the long-awaited Messiah has come. He's come. But they don't want to hear that because they put him to death. They've got their religious niche carved out, and they don't want it disrupted. It gives them power, grandeur, respect, it makes them feel good about themselves. And so that pride went over the top in that group of 71 on the Sanhedrin, and now they want him killed. So Paul's saying, for what? For what? This is, these are things, and now I stand here, verse 6 of, of chapter 26 from last week, I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers. That's their issue. It comes from Moses. I'm not rejecting Moses. That couldn't be further from the truth. Verse 7, To which our twelve tribes hope to attain. This is our long-awaited expectation as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Is that too hard for him? You know better than that. The Pharisees, of course, held to resurrection. The only ones that didn't were the Sadducees. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. So Paul appealed to the Pharisees, who were the majority, all the way through. So now we find ourselves. He's persecuting. He said, look, I even stood against the way, which is what they referred to Christianity as. I went around to imprison them. I was zealously against them. I persecuted the church. I was bringing them, by letters from the chief priests himself, bringing them to prison. I approved of it when they were put to death. Look, I get it. I know where you're coming from. It's just that we have been very wrong. This is the Christ, the long-awaited one, our Deliverer, the Messiah. verse 12 through 18, for today's passage. In this connection, that is, on his way to persecute, on a road to Damascus, where he's converted, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Father, thank you. O Lord, if we would only look, we would see the perfect coordination of your providence, that we would land on these words as we have the elements of Holy Communion in front of us. This is you, O Lord a spectacular display of the brilliance and the power and the glory of the providential outworking as you speak to us. Those who have benefited from these elements, Lord, help us to understand this passage as you've appointed for us here this day, that we would have the appreciation all the more for what we celebrate at the end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this is Paul's fifth defense. As I said, this is the third report of his conversion. There's the actual report itself in chapter nine. And then in chapter 22, there's a retelling by Paul. And now we hear it told again, this conversion on the Damascus road. So, in this section from verse 12 to 18, this is Paul sharing his Damascus Road conversion with King Agrippa. That's what we're looking at. Okay, so he's already done his introduction. We looked at last week as we, I pointed a few things from that. And now he's going into the defense itself, starting with his conversion. Because if you're King Agrippa, and I'm glad you're not, But if you're King Agrippa and you're Jewish, you're thinking, I understand, Moses, what happened to you? You persecuted the church. Why are you the church's friend? Why do you risk your life now going around? So you start with your conversion story. Here's what happened. The risen Christ himself came, and he came in the form of a light. Now, see, that should have made sense to them because that is in their extant scriptures at the time, the Old Testament, as we call it. That he would come and be a great light was prophesied. And we understand that. So let's dig in. Verse 12. In this connection, that is the connection to, I was on my way to continue to persecute the church. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. Verse 14, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. We hadn't seen that expression before, had we? In these conversion stories, this is the single place that he says this. What does this mean? This should captivate your attention. And so this morning, we're going to focus on that expression as it shows up here. And what the significance of that is. What does Jesus mean by that? And then we're going to look at another word that shows up three times between here and the end of his testimony. And that is the idea of of light. So let's start with this somewhat enigmatic enigmatic statement it's hard for you to kick against the groads. Well, first of all we need to understand that this was a common expression in Greek and Latin. So this would have been very familiar to all that are listening, not only the Romans from their Latin experience but also to the greek speaking jews and all the rest they would have known what that meant goads of course were used by cattle farmers or those that have oxen that pull carts uh, they would have sharpened sticks and whenever the oxen wasn't the ox weren't going in the direction that the farmer wanted them to they could poke them with this and it was a little jab, and they felt it. This is a sharpened stick being stuck into them. And obviously from the backside, because as sometimes if the ox is irritable enough or upset enough or surprised enough or objecting enough, they will kick at the farmer. They will kick at the farmer and in some cases end up kicking the goad themselves which has to increase the pain overall, I'm sure you would agree, to kick back into the very instrument of pain that was meant to direct them in a certain direction, being that stubborn that they would not only not do that, refuse to do that, but kick against that pain, even though it inflicts more pain. this is apparently Paul's life. That's who Jesus is speaking to. So we understand that God often, to make this practical for us, what does this have to do for us? We, we understand this principle, at least I hope we do, that God often allows us to struggle at times enduring very painful things that occur as a circumstance of the choices that we're making whenever they're contrary to His will. We do it anyway. And when circumstantially we have the goad of God, if you will, letting us know that we've gone in a direction that He's not really leading us, we can kick against it, can't we? We can show our opposition, can't we? The Scriptures use other expressions. We raise up the head. When the Bible uses that, it expression or stiffen the neck. It means when God is trying to put his yoke on us so that we would follow him, we resist, we buck, we stiffen our necks. We resist the goads. We we can become angry and fact over these kinds of things. So we endure the consequences. So they would have understood this because in Greek and Latin literature, it meant that you're, res- you're resisting one's destiny or you're resisting what the gods, and this would have been, of course, understandable to the Romans, gods, plural, were trying to get you to do. It's very common. So you're fighting the will of the one who is trying to direct you, lead you. So we've met the will of God often meets with the iron obstinacy of the fallen human will or of the heart. And it's a formidable foe at times, isn't it? it can be we should never underestimate that proverbs 13:15 and i like it in the king james the way of the transgressor is what hard. hard we transgress transgress a transgression is there's bible has different words for sin where hamartia translated sin typically means missing the mark transgression means knowing where the line is of God's law and deliberately, knowingly stepping across it. So the way of the person who does that, resisting the will of God, is hard. It's hard. Why are you kicking against these things, Jesus is saying to Paul? Is that not hard for you? This word hard, ithon, in the Hebrew is, it means rough, rugged, and enduring rut. Those who resist God's will act as though they know better than God, don't we at times? It's either that or we resist because there's some desired outcome that we want. We lust after, we long for. And so we know we're going against the will of God and we do it anyway. That's what this has in mind. But the way that we've chosen when we do that becomes increasingly and increasingly, what? Difficult, doesn't it? becomes hard. And so these, these verses, these principles speak to us. The way of doing things your way instead of God's, you could say, is difficult, isn't it? Paul, you're, you're persecuting me is kicking against the Father's will altogether in terms of putting, imprisoning and putting to death those who are Christians. Augustine said, I was held before conversion, not with an iron chain, but with the obstinacy of my own will, end quote. That's an honest confession, isn't it? Nobody made me do it. I like it when when we're kids, we say, well, he made me do that, right? You made the decision yourself. Wretched indeed is the creature who must rid himself of every thought of God and eternity. We, we often must bludgeon our senses with intoxicants and, and turn up the volume on our amusements to shut that out. so we can have things the way we want it, especially our amusements, especially life our way. It's a tough, tough life to live as a transgressor. I understand that. Perhaps some of you do. And so we could say men go to hell sweating. We actually... Work hard at sinning. It actually takes energy. It actually takes great effort to go against the will of the sovereign king who created us, who put us in this creation to live a particular way according to his revealed will. And when we resist that, it's hard. That's the point. Jeremiah 9.5, they weary themselves committing iniquity. And yet we know that going in as sinners and we do it, what? Anyway. Matthew Henry says on this verse, they are wearied with their sinful pursuits and yet not weary of them. See, that's the point, isn't it? The service of sin is a perfect drudgery. Men run themselves out of breath in it and put themselves to a great deal of toil to damn their own souls, end quote. There are moments of time when that vestige of rationale rises up in the midst of the intoxicants and the noise of the amusements and says, this is terrible. I'm actually miserable. I don't know why, I have this schizophrenia right now because I'm doing it anyway. How about the angels? The two angels when they came to visit Lot, Sodom, and Gomorrah. These two men, in the form of men, come. Lot whisks them out of the market square. They were going to stay overnight out in the open. No, 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 not here. Come to my home. They come to his home. And the men, young and old it says, doesn't get much creepier than this. Come, surround the house and bang on the door. Turn those men out to us. Lot does something reprehensible that we can't even wrap our mind around. Take my daughter, but don't, don't harm these men. And they keep banging on the door. Lot goes out to tell them that, and so the angels grab him and drag him in and shut the door and blind them. They're all blind. You think they learned their lesson and went home? And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house both small and great so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. You mean it, it it's that captivating it's it's that ensnaring than even blind. There are drug users who lose limbs, who lose other parts of their body, lose their health, and yet still they'll be looking for a vein to put the needle in. There's, if you're looking for rationality when it comes to the pursuit of sin, you're looking in the wrong way. doesn't make any sense. Isaiah 57.10 says, You were wearied with the length of your way. Watch this. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. Here's God using that prod, and it hurts, to steer you away. And you've got to fight to keep going in that way. You didn't say it's hopeless. You didn't give up. Why didn't you give up, right? He goes on to say in that verse, You found new life for your strength. What? And so you were not faint. Another translation says, So you were not sick. I allowed you to suffer the full brunt of the consequences of your choices. And yet you would, would not say, This is ridiculous. This is hopeless. I'm worn out. I'm out of money. My wife left me. My health is gone. Whatever it might be. You never got there. You crawled to your sin. You groped for it blind. Praise God for the grace when the light comes, yeah? You see, here's the thing. It's not just the sinners. The sinners fight their way into hell as saints battle their way into heaven. It's a fight either way, just of different types, isn't it? Where do I get that from? Well, Matthew eleven twelve. from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. Oh, that's for sure. And Saul was afflicting it at the time. And the violent take it by force. Or as Luke 16.16 puts it, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Why? Because it goes against the grain of our desires. Because it has to fight this fight with our flesh. Because doing good doesn't come natural to us, it's not our nature. Our nature is to serve whom? Ourselves. That's where pride produces all manner of sins, as we talked about in the first hour. Acts 14.22, Through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven are synonymous. Same thing. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The kingdom of God suffers violence uh, by all of those that are opposed to it. And that used to be Paul, then Saul fighting against it, fighting even though it's wearing him out. He gets this energy from where, you have to wonder, from his fallen nature. People are never so bent as when they can't have something their way, especially when they're going up against something that they oppose. Even though in the heart of their hearts they might be thinking, this is wrong what I'm doing. They fight anyway. It's an amazing principle. So there's two struggles going on. Those that are fighting to go to hell and those that are battling in Christ to get to heaven. This isn't a works-oriented gospel, which is no gospel. This isn't works. This is the struggle it takes to follow the course of the God who inhabits us is leading us. It's, has it been easy for you? Let me just ask you. Have you arrived? Well, of course you haven't. Neither have I. That's the point. The difference is this. The difference is, I think, at least in this statement from John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Huh. In the world, you have tribulation. This is definite. Uh, this is indicative This is a fact. You can't change this fact. But take heart, what? I have overcome the world. That's the difference. But listen, friends, that's all the difference in the world, isn't it? So in Christ, we're able to be called overcomers. Yes. But there is a struggle, isn't there? That remains. But yet we have the peace We have the Prince of Peace himself who resides in us, who says, that work that I started in you, I promise I will complete. I will get you from this point to the point of your home going. I will get you there. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord so we can endure the struggle. Paul understands the difference, doesn't he? Listen to Isaiah 5.18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. Cinch me up. Ah, oh, you don't have to. I'll do it. You want to pull that thing. You know it's going in the wrong direction. Yeah. Put it on. I'll bend my head down for that yoke. Put it on. Cinch me up with the heavy ropes it'll take to pull that cart. See, there's there's no sanity to sin. There's no rationality. There's no reasonableness to it. It's insane. Why we would do that, especially when we've been given consciences that are either accusing or excusing us, Romans 2.15, when we know there's a God, when we know He will judge, every human being understands that, even though they live in denial of it. Why we would we do that? So like brute beasts, men living against the will of the Creator yoke themselves to a heavy load. Proverbs 5.2 is similar. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare them, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Edward Young commenting on Isaiah says this the cords are those which consist of vanity you you know that what you're doing when you sin produces nothing good and yet we do it it's the vanity of it all expressed eloquently of course in Ecclesiastes this is all vanity I'm going to do it anyway I'm going to stay in this world. You're going to stay in that world? Yoke to that cart? Pulling that through? When you know there's the hope of heaven? When you know there's another place that's promised people who will simply confess that they are sinful and in need of a Savior? You would do that? The Bible says the majority are saying what? Put it on. Put it on. Oh, and those of us who've had those lines cut free are looking at our loved ones who say, put it on. And we're saying, what, what do you think? It? We, so we, we reason with them. And like I said, how far does that go? We give them everything we've got. We hope that they see a lifestyle that's free from that. Yeah, but you struggle. Yeah, I struggle, but but I have the peace of Christ in me. He's overcome the world, and He that is in me allows me to overcome this world. His way is no longer burdensome to me. It is my joy and my delight. Going on with Jung. By means of vanity, men are dragging iniquity after them. Vanity he writes, is nothingness. It's actually destroying you. It's actually killing you. It is without being in reality. It is the lie. It is the lie. With the lie, men draw iniquity after them by means of the falsehoods which characterize his life. The transgressor is bound to a cart of iniquity and drags this cart after him. Some men strain and struggle to accomplish a good end. Iniquity is a severe taskmaster. End quote. So that's the rank pagan with his ropes and cart that he pulls. But it occurred to me as I was thinking about these things, that there's other religions that have their ropes that they pull, right? There's those religions, all the other ones that aren't religions that have a gospel of grace by faith in Jesus Christ alone. They have other forms of dealing with the sin that they know they can't rid themselves of Case in point, the Catholic form of penance. So you can relieve yourself from those iniquities as you confess them to the vicar, which means substitute for Christ, if you're comfortable doing that, the priest, and the priest will give you so many things that you can do by way of penance to assuage the guilt. It reminded me that just thinking about that reminded me of a movie Uh, that was, uh, it it had won awards back in 1986. Some of you may have seen the movie The Mission with Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons. You can't recommend it because it's all Catholic theology, because this is set in, I don't know, the 1500s, 1600s. And the Catholic missionary priest, is in some faraway tribal kind of place. The, the movie was shot in Argentina. And so there were tribes people there that the mission, the Catholic missionary was there, the priest, uh, to convert to Catholicism. And the character name that De Niro had was Rodrigo. And Rodrigo had the full knight's armor. He had the sword, the whole nine yards. He would have been the equivalent, if you're familiar with Les Mis, he's the equivalent of the sheriff Javert. Except where Javert killed himself because he couldn't bear his guilt. Sorry if that's a spoiler. Should have given you a spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. You need to see Les Mis. There's so many wonderful symbols in there. So Javert represents the law. So does Rodrigo in the mission. Well, he gets into a, some sort of disagreement or fight with his brother that he loves. Challenged to a duel, he fights a duel and kills his brother. He cannot bear the guilt. He is so heavily burdened, he submits himself to a dungeon. There's a scene where Jeremy Irons, who's the priest, comes to him and says, So, so this is how you're going to handle this? And he says... There is a way out. De Niro says, there is no life. There is no redemption for me. Well, the way out the priest has is penance. So he says, he gives him this other way. So De Niro spent a good part of the movie. He takes all of the trappings of his former life as an armed, whatever his role was, all of his armor, his swords, all of it, he put it into a big rope mesh bundle and he took a big thick rope, he put it over his shoulder and he kept trying to climb these very, very steep cliffs, dragging this bundle from his former life. And there was a waterfall nearby so it gets real slick and he's soaked and he's soaked with not only water but sweat. He can barely get up this steep hill and he's dragging it. And then he'd at some point slip and fall all the way back down again. And he'd start right back up again. And at one point, a young Liam Neeson is in and he comes to the priest said, he's done enough. The priest says, "He doesn't think so. How long will you drag the cart rope of that penance? How wrong-headed that is when Christ did all the doing for us? How much of your life will be spent living? in the sins of your past. Suffering those sins over and over again as though you were putting Christ to his death over and over again, declaring its insufficiency. How long? We fight to do things our way, whether... It's as a pagan wanting his sin, knowing he's rejecting God, or it's the religious person who carries their own loan, doing their own sort of wicked form, their own wrong-headed form of penance. The whole thing is sad, isn't it? Especially when Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, Come to me all who laden are who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls oh sweet rest For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come. We're not at the altar call yet, so don't get excited. We've got more to cover. So though man, we understand that though man weaves the cords of his own sin, he is incapable of setting himself free of them. That's the point. Through this human effort, through some religious misunderstanding, like penance, they become the cords of his own undoing if he never makes it to the cross, where Christ was before him and says, I've taken those cords on myself to set you free. Only Christ can break the cords of sin and its consequent guilt. Paul receives commission, his commission from the Lord in our text, verse 15. And I said, Where are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you, as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. This servant and witness is his call. This servant and witness is our call. We are both servants and witnesses. That's who we are. We pick up where the disciples, where the apostles left off, who picked up where Jesus left off. His work continues to go on. But we must ourselves not only understand the gospel, we must appropriate it. And that is a full understanding of grace. And setting yourself free. Verse 70 Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. There's our word. And from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. We would shout, by faith alone, O Lord, by faith alone. I have nothing to offer your cross. I have no business carrying on the punishment. You have done it all. Your suffering is sufficient There is a life that we can live, dear friends, where we are set completely free from the guilt, from the burden. If we understand never to pick it up again. So this is the central point. This is the pinnacle of his speech right here. So that, purpose clause, so that what? They may turn from darkness to light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Who are we to pick these things up again? Paul gets this now. He's devoted to it. After Damascus Road, he's got it. That light came, and it takes a light because we are dead and blind in our sin. It takes a light that, as in one description, it says it's brighter than the noonday sun. It's going to have to be to pierce this darkened heart, to turn me around. So this light from heaven we see three times in this passage From verse 13, verse 18, and we'll see it again in verse 23. Look for repeated themes that speaks to their significance. There is a light that must shine. Let's go from there. Suddenly a light shone from heaven around him. That's his actual conversion experience in chapter 9, verse 3. To the crowd in Jerusalem, that first offense, he says... A great light from heaven suddenly showed around me. Chapter 22, verse 6. And it's repeated again three times in our passage. Unregenerate are dead and they're blind. They need to see the glory of the face of Jesus Christ as it shines through those who He inhabits can't do that if we're living out some wicked form of legalistic self-punishment and self-fulfilling atonement. You talk about irrational. You talk about insane. Especially to those who understand the sweetness and the freedom and the gift of the gospel itself. Second Corinthians 4, we understand though from verse 4, don't we? In their case, the case of the unbeliever, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ because that's the key. That's the point in all of these repeated repeated tellings from the apostle Paul. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Saul slash Paul is living proof that No amount of religious knowledge, no amount of religious practice is going to get it done. So why do we continue to do that? Because we are born legalistic. We are born counting, measuring, and weighing. That's how we function. We count things. And then we measure them, and then we weigh them out, don't we? No amount of that is going to set you free from those cords. But the reason that you cannot see the resplendent beauty of the face of Jesus Christ is really we have to confess if we stood before the Lord, and one day we will. We made the decision not to. I made the decision to live that I lived, the life I lived in New York City. That was my decision. I'm culpable. I'm responsible. It's the irrationality, the absurdity, the insanity of choosing to live a life that's destroying you. It's destroying your marriage. That's destroying your family. That's destroying your health. I like something that uh, someone said to Sir Isaac Newton. Actually, Ironside had featured this. He wrote this story. Someone said to Sir Isaac Newton... Sir Isaac, I do not understand. You seem to be able to believe the Bible like a little child. I've tried, but I cannot. So many of its statements mean nothing to me. I cannot believe. I cannot understand. Sir Isaac Newton replied, Sometimes I come into my study, and in my absent-mindedness, I attempt to light my candle when the extinguisher is still over it. Then I fumble about trying to light, light it and cannot. But when I remove the extinguisher, then I am able to light the candle. I'm afraid the extinguisher, in your case, is your love for your sins. It is deliberate unbelief that is in you. That is deliberate. Is that because you didn't come up with a wise enough or clever enough gospel presentation that they rejected you? It's because of their unbelief, which is willful. That's the point. He goes on to say here, Turn to God in repentance. Be prepared to let the Spirit of God reveal His truth to you, and it will be His joy to show the glory of the grace of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Quote. He said through Isaiah forty 49.6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. There are only two realms of existence in the world. There aren't three categories. There aren't four. There's only two, darkness and death and the light of life, one or the other. You're in one of those categories right now. John the Baptist said in Matthew 4, 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. That's the point. That's key. That's central to the gospel. They need to see they need to see because they're blind how does he shine that light well he told us already I've appointed you as a servant as a witness Paul now go witness and if you witness accurately and live the life that I've called you to watch what I do because it's not the glory of Paul that would save any is it or you or I it's a glory of Christ that shines through, that allows them to see. The light shines in John 1 4 5. In him was life, and the life was what? The light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, verse 9, was coming into the world. The light has arrived. That light has been handed off. He has to go be with the Father, but I'm going to send another. That was the beginning of the book of Acts, remember? So the Holy Spirit will now descend upon you. He will dwell in you. He will illuminate you, if you will. The Spirit of the living Christ lives within you, and you vocalize His words. You use, you use the ability... You have with language to express his thoughts. You, you use words to articulate the gospel. You allow the example of your life, how you live it, to be the legitimacy that there is a God and that there is a Christ. I am the light of the world, he said in John eight twelve. I am the light of the world, and all those who follow me We'll no longer walk in darkness, but we'll have the light of what? Of life. Of life. In chapter 12 of John 35 to 36, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Why should we fault them? For something they cannot help themselves, will we stop judging them? Why should we stop judging them? What do we always say? Because what? They've already been judged. They should have our pity, our sympathy. But, as I said, out of the womb, we're judgmentalists. We are legalists. While you have the light, believe in the light, he says further, that you may become sons of the light. You need to be the little lights if you will of my the light of my glory lived out in you so other people can see me because now they can't i had someone do that for me paul she's sending paul to be this witness verse 18 he says to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of satan to god and from the power that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then 2 Corinthians 4, as we're bringing this to a close, 4 verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into, the hearts, into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the point. Of the gospel. There it is. We memorize other verses that might articulate it in other ways. This is what has to happen. This is what was prophesied would come. The light of the glory of God is coming. I know who you are, said Martha. You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That's right. In John 11. In the chapter before that in John 10 he says, I am the door, right? Everyone who enters by me will be saved, and they will come in and go out and find pasture. I am the light of the world, John 8:12. Whoever follows me no longer walks in darkness, but walks in light. to proclaim Christ crucified and risen. For the forgiveness of our sins, to bring the light of the gospel, to sin darkened minds, this is our privilege and our pleasure. That they might be able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Someone wrote, I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morning shall rise, and all thy days be bright. I looked to Jesus, and I found in him my star, my sun. And in that light of life I'll walk, till traveling days are done. Have you seen him? Will you testify to what you've seen? Do you have the light of Christ shining in you? Have you received the forgiveness of your sins? If you're trying to work that out in sort of a balance sheet of good works over against things you've done wrong or how we compare and measure ourselves with other people and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as. Oh, you've bought into a lie. You have no salvation. Because Christ has completed it all. He's paid it all. And it is His glory, not our own, through our good works, that must shine through us that they might see the resplendent face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this the, the glory, the beauty of this gospel that you've given us so freely, the greatest gift ever given. given, And it is a gift, O oh Lord. We need to remember it is a gift that you've given us freely, sacrificing your own son that we might be forgiven. What a treasure. What a joy it is. O oh Lord, help us to refrain from things that come natural to us, which are legalistic ways of Avoiding the cross. Thinking that I'm sure it'll work out all right. I, I'm sure it'll be okay. I'm not that bad. Lord, if we've sinned in one place, we've, we're guilty of the whole law. That's how this works. And Lord, you know that. And so you've offered your son. And we celebrate that this morning. We remember that. We commemorate his act of dying on the cross and freely offering himself for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, may we remember now as we partake and if we've not received Christ, may we not bring further condemnation on ourselves and simply let the cup pass by. This we ask for your glory's sake. Amen. Amen.